Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. We're excited for summer here at City Collective. We're going to be approaching it a couple different ways. We'll probably be outside a little bit. Uh, we're going to have some community group Sundays, some Sabbath Sundays, and we're going to be here. So it's going to be a variety of different things throughout the summer, and we'll be sending out a schedule to let you know exactly how that all is going to be happening. But for the month of June, uh, we are in a series called Unpopular. Uh, we're considering the stories of a variety of minor prophets in the Bible. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, we started the series by going through the book of, of Micah and considering the requirement that God puts before the people of Israel. That the, the prophet Micah, he, he speaks truth to power. And perhaps in the most famous verse of the book of Micah, it talks about God requiring three things of his people. To act justly, to, to walk in mercy, uh, to, to show mercy, and to walk humbly. And so those three things are put before the people of Israel but not simply to be actions, but to be birthed out of a place where they truly know God. Now, here's what I want you to know about this series. Uh, when we consider the idea of minor prophets, I think we often think of them as lesser prophets. The only reason they are categorized as minor prophets is that they are shorter books. They don't have as long of a narrative in the biblical text. Uh, a lot of them were actually uh, communicating and advocating and, and speaking truth to power alongside one another. We, we talked about last week, like Micah and Isaiah were both prophets within the same kingdoms to the same kings and speaking a similar narrative to, to the people of Israel at the time. And this week, we are going into a, a book that I know I haven't read a ton in my lifetime. I don't know if you have dived into it either. It's the book of Habakkuk. Everybody on three. One, two, three. Say Habakkuk. One, two, three. Habakkuk. Yeah, that might be the only time you ever say that word. Uh, it's probably not in the top 100 names of babies in 2022. Uh, two books after the book of Micah, and it's sandwiched between Nahum and Zephaniah. Uh, Habakkuk is all of three chapters. And we know it's about 600 B.C. in which it takes place. But Habakkuk is a little bit different than some of his minor prophet contemporaries. Because Habakkuk doesn't actually accuse Israel in the midst of the book. But rather, his address is a personal dialogue with God. His book is a personal struggle that I think a lot of us are going to relate with. And the struggle is, can I believe that God is good while there is so much tragedy in the world? It feels like a very real statement. And this is what Habakkuk engage with, engages with all the way through. The question, question of suffering existing in our world. And Habakkuk felt this bur burden. And in fact, his words, as they are constructed, are poems of lament. They're similar in their structure and their feel to what you're going to find in large portions of the Psalms. And the poet 
he lodges a complaint to draw God's attention and demands that God do something about it. I think we've all done that at some point. Frustration of the circumstance that we're in. God, if you are good, why don't you see what's going on? I want you to do something about it. So we're going to dive into this text a little further, and we're going to start off by reading just at the very beginning out of Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we're going to have till verse 5 on the screen. I might read a little farther. So it starts off by saying the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. And then he begins to speak. He says, how long, Lord, how long is the narrative of, of the prophets of longing? How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And then God answers and says in verse 5, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are feared and dreaded. They are a law to themselves and they promote their own honor. It's funny, I've, I've heard uh, that verse often used where God says, look at what I'm about to do and be utterly amazed from going to do something in your days that you would not believe. And then there's this communication of, wow, it's going to be amazing what God does. But I find it fascinating that what God communicates in this moment is I'm going to use the, the, the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians, this people that would actually be characterized as being worse than the people of Israel to accomplish my goodness. And so what takes place, we're not going to read through the entire book. It's, even though it's only three chapters, we'll be here for a little bit. Uh, what takes place immediately after is God responds and Habakkuk's focus switches. He's no longer so concerned about the conflict in the world and the injustice in the world. What he gets really angry about is how dare you use a people worse than us for your goodness? And this is where the question really arises. How can I believe that you're good, God, if this is the way that you're going to act? If this is the way that you're going to do things, this doesn't seem very good to me. So, I grew up going to church and a lot of wonderful things about growing up in a Christian family and being in a church community when you're, when you're growing up. Perhaps this was my own hesitancy but, or the culture of the place that I was in, but I often found that speaking honestly, voicing frustration and voicing complaint was not a normalized practice within church circles, that it, it, all, it could almost feel sinful 
if I was to say I'm upset or frustrated about what God is doing around me. And the manner in which we almost treated the Sunday space was reflective of this. You could, you could have a really awful commute over to the church. You could be arguing the whole way. And then the minute you hit those church doors, you walk on through and you're saying to yourself, hey, good morning. You're so good. It's so good to see you this morning. You look real good. You know, we had a great morning. I said, I slept so well. I'm really, and, and everything dissipates. Everything's gone. And, 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 and it floats away, this real feeling that kind of was taking place in this moment. You barely slept all week. You were feeling stress and anxiety. But the minute you walk through those doors, you got to push it to the side and, and just be there. Now, I'm not saying that there's not something good about being present and enjoying a space uh, uh, like, like community with, with family. But I, I deeply appreciate the simple fact that Habakkuk invites us to be honest. Because here's, here's what you need to know about the book. Habakkuk, in the midst of honest complaint, of ongoing lament, is actually a book about faith. I think we're, we're less attuned to a practice of lament in our modern spaces. But I would say that the Bible is honest in its presentation of it being a necessary part of walking and waiting upon God. So we're going to title this talk today, Honest But Hopeful. And we're not going to rush to hopeful just yet, don't worry. Um, because the message of Habakkuk is faith, but it's definitely not void of, of honesty. In fact, our minor prophet, he calls out to God, asking him to deal with human evil. And he's angry with God about how God chooses to deal with it. And so the central question that we're confronted with right off the bat, is God really good if the world is so unjust? Is God really good if the world is so unjust? And it can be a struggle to believe that God is good while there's so much tragedy in our world. This is a prophet of God, someone that is, would claim to have a relationship, to be close to God. And he's overwhelmed by the reality that he sees around him. And I think that is a familiar feeling. That we get confronted with the pain and reality of life, and we don't know what to do with it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he talks about the idea of pain, and he says that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousnesses, but shouts in our pains. It's a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In the midst of our pain is often where we are most likely to actually just listen. And in many ways, I find it more encouraging that we have a prophet showing his humanity and being frustrated rather than simply being ignorant. I, I don't know if you've seen there's these car tracks. We've got, we've got lots of these little ones, and I, I know even like uh, the Grams, they've got Beckett, and Beckett's got this... Uh, 
great little car set, and, and you see where the track is all set up. And you've got these little Hot Wheels cars, fire blazing down the side of it. And, and you see the way the track is set up. And you see the cars when they're going, and they're kind of swiveling around each other. But what do you know is going to happen? They're going to crash. <laughs> There's this impending crash that's coming. It's almost the way that it's designed, in fact. And it's almost like what we're going to see in the book of Habakkuk. That there's this crash that's coming between this idea of faith and a struggle to believe that God is good. So Habakkuk, he communicates this, this lament and God responds and Habakkuk is upset with how he responds. And then God, he outlines, the, the, he calls them five woes that were part of his frustration with the people of Israel. And they were very much in line with the character of God, unjust economic pra practice, keeping poor people in debt, slave labor, irresponsible leaders who were overusing alcohol, idolatry. It was the engine of the nation. It was making money, power, and national security the highest value over God. And then the people of God weren't living like the people of God, and God was not happy. And then we get to chapter 3. And chapter 3, if you're going to read something out of the book of Habakkuk, I would deeply encourage you. Chapter 3 is a beautiful poem to consider. The, the, book begin, or the chapter begins with a reminder for Habakkuk of who God is. Do you remember all the ways that I've been with you? Do you remember all the ways that we have gone on this journey? And then it gets to chapter 3, verse 17 to 19, and this is what we're going to read together. And it says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. It's Psalm-esque in its writing style. So here you have our author. You have Habakkuk rejoicing in the world even though the circumstances around him are falling apart. In an economy like Israel's in the ancient world, no fig tree, no, uh, no grapes on the vine, no crops, no fields producing, no sheep, no cattle. I want you to realize this. All these things that are being communicated, this isn't just a bad year. This is a Awful, fatalistic, terrible time. This is actually a time of death, a time of famine. It is as awful as it was going to happen for them. And yet, what is communicated by Habakkuk is, I will still be joyful in the Lord. So the question is then, how do we do that? One of the most moving pieces of church history uh, that I've come across comes from a story in 1851. There was an English missionary by the name of Alan Gardner, and he was shipwrecked after uh, going south, and he was shipwrecked with a number of people on a very remote, uninhabited island off the tip of South America. 
And they died on that island one at a time. All we know is that he was the last one alive. Because he kept a journal, and, he, and this journal was found right next to his body. And the very last entry that was in that journal was a quote from Psalm 34:10, where it says, Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. As he was dying and death was all around him, he was overwhelmed by a sense of the goodness of God. Body broken, all hopes dashed. He had desired to go be a missionary, and he didn't even get to really go do that. And he wrote that I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Now here's the thing. You and I, we often infer the idea of goodness based upon good things that happen to us. When we say that God has been good, we mean there are certain things that I have desired in my life that have seemed to come about and therefore we infer the goodness of God. This was not the case for Alan Gardner. There was a different kind of goodness that he clearly had engaged with. Just like Habakkuk, the fig tree had not budded. There were no olives. There were no grapes. There was no cattle in the stalls. And yet he rejoiced. And yet we in our circumstances are invited to rejoice. And I think in, in the book of Habakkuk, we're invited to consider three things when looking at how we can answer that question. Repeating, remembering, and rejoicing. Firstly, repeating. In verse 18, it says, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. Immediately within the text, the Habakkuk himself is repeating that he needed to have his joy come from God. Within the text, there's repeating itself. There's repetition. And I don't think we should forget about that because if we're really trying to rejoice in the Lord and get in contact with his goodness directly, we need to have practice in our lives. I want to connect this idea of repetition and practice. We need to have practices in our lives. We need to pray once a day, twice a day, three times a day. I'm not, I'm not dictating how many times a day, but we need to be having practice of prayer in our life, not to bend the will of God to ours, but so that our hearts are drawn to His. Well, I think so often that we treat prayer in a manner that is confession and it is petition, but what would it look like if we came before God with a heart that desired to just draw near to what God is doing in our midst, to take all that we're doing, our chaotic soul, out of the maelstrom of the moment into his perfect peace. That is prayer, to take the chaotic soul that we have out of our moments that we're in into his perfect peace. And often, that's not a single moment that takes place, a dramatic experience. It is an ongoing experience because I know for myself, every single day there is a new challenge that I know I need to bring before God. My attitude was not so good in the morning. I need to bring that before God. My response to someone who felt a little bit upset with me, I need to bring before God. 
my, my, my treatment of others, the, my language that I'm using, the mentality that I'm holding. There, we have a chaotic soul. And we wonder why stress and anxiety, when they do come into our midst, are overwhelming. And so often the Bible is actually inviting us to take all that is anxious and just give it to God, the place of perfect peace that our soul desires. We're not just purely physical and emotional, we're spiritual beings. And when our souls are chaotic, how does the rest of our being actually find rest? To find a sense of repetition in our lives, in the practices that we engage with. That's the first thing that is invited to us. Even if we look at the Bible itself, there are four Gospels that are provided to us. And they're somewhat different perspectives, but each Gospel goes deeper. And there's this need for repetition because we are creatures that work through habit. So first, we repeat. Secondly, I want us to consider the rest of chapter 3. Like I mentioned, God provides all of the different ways that he has been good to the people of Israel. That he's provided for the people of Israel. So the second idea is one of remembrance. Sometimes when life is caught in the chaos of the moment, we need to be reminded of what peace has actually felt like. It, it, it's like any good uh, basketball player will tell you that uh, you're going to go through cold streaks in your life. You're going to go through moments where it doesn't matter how often you take a shot. It doesn't seem to be going in. But you need to be reminded sometimes of that feeling of, oh, that feels right. I, and I need, to, I need to have that practice in what I do. But I need to be reminded, oh, even by a friend or by a coach, I'm capable. I, I, I can do this. This is sometimes part of how we navigate difficult situations. We need to have a sense of remembrance in what we do. One way of getting in touch with the goodness of God is knowing that there's nothing that is happening in our life right now that might seem good to ourselves, but that isn't true of who God is. Pentecost Sunday itself is a day of remembrance. It's not just a celebration of an, of an ambiguous spirit or force. It's a moment for us to remember that the spirit came upon his waiting people. If you're asking the question today, when I'm interacting with the spirit, it doesn't feel like it's happening. Maybe we need to remember the manner in which the spirit came upon the disciples, that they simply had a posture of waiting. Remembrance can also provide us a, a, a map, a place in which we can engage with the presence of God, with the way of Jesus again. Through the stories that have been told before us. The Spirit is poured out to establish a new family. And it's funny because then every Christian should be called Pentecostal in this respect. <laughs> Because Pentecost essentially lets us know that the change that we long to see personally, slow, socially, and globally, we won't ultimately come through our own strength, but by God's empowerment. And truth has power when we are reminded of it in action. 
I love that on that first Pentecost Sunday, Peter, he, he gets out and he preaches. And this is the same Peter who denies Jesus a, a few weeks earlier. And the Holy Spirit is not a reward for good behavior and unwavering faith. The Holy Spirit is a gift to those who turn to Jesus and wait on him. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. The Holy Spirit came upon those who simply chose to wait on him. The Holy Spirit can't be limited to our experience, but the Christian life is limited without an experience of the Spirit. And just as we need moments of encounter filled in with spiritual formation and practice, we need moments of remembrance to sustain us through difficult circumstances. Learning to trust God through trouble leads us to peace in the midst of our problems. So number one, repetition. Number two, remembrance. And number three, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing. And I think this means praise and not just about good things, but to actually get into touch with God. How much time do we actually spend rejoicing? It's even our treatment of celebration, right? When, when something good happens, we take a moment and we celebrate it. We have a party. We buy a cake. We get a bouncy castle. It's a great moment. And then we go back and it feels like the celebration almost feels like an interruption of reality. Whereas the invitation that God gives to his people is that you need to be rejoicing in all moments and to be thinking that as the regular space that you find yourself in. That God's goodness is consistent and constant and present at all times. Therefore, our response of rejoicing has an opportunity to be one and the same. We need to stop treating rejoicing like a birthday party. That we do once a year because we remembered, oh yeah, God is good sometimes. Instead, we should be inviting God to every space of our life. Remembering the goodness of God in the land of the living. So that rejoicing is an overflow of a life that is committed to trusting in a good God. What Habakkuk reveals to us through his own journey is that he bases his definition of goodness on something else. Because, like I said, you and I often infer goodness from the good things that are happening to us. God is good because these good things happened. Goodness, that is a trait purely based on what benefits us, is not goodness. In fact, I think this is what we see causing vast divisiveness in our culture. Because your definition of what's good for you is often going to be different from your neighbor or from myself. And then we get these big conversations like gun control. And someone talks about the fact that they believe that guns are good for them and they completely don't consider the wider narrative. Because what happens when we consider these conversations is that we take what's good and we apply it purely to ourselves and we become narrow in our perspective of what's going on around us. Consider a conversation like racial segregation. There was a time in which the cultural narrative didn't push that it was good, therefore it was not good. 
And therefore, because it, it was only good for me to, to have the segregation, therefore, it should be a good thing to keep them separate from us. That's what they did. The slave trade fell into the same category. There were those who believed it was good for them and we're not considering the cost that it had for others. When goodness is placed purely through the definition of what benefits me, it is no longer goodness. It is a biased approach for selfish gain. God's goodness, therefore, has to be more than what simply benefits us. Otherwise, God's goodness isn't based on God, it's based on us. Because this is what Jesus does. He comes into the world and he invites us to make him our foundation, to make him our center. And then the action that he invites us into is this. Lose your life in order to find it. Lay down your life for another. Give sacrificially. I don't believe that we would quantify any of those initial invitations as something that might immediately benefit us. If we have this narrow perspective, we won't see what God is trying to accomplish in the world and the invitation that's being given. Walter Brueggemann, he writes this beautiful text about the book of Habakkuk, and, and he writes this about it. He says, The twin temptations of denial and despair may have been very powerful in Jerusalem. Denial rooted in Jerusalem theology, despair grounded in the awareness of Babylonian power. And you can replace those ideas for our modern culture. You could say denial rooted in, in, in our personal belief systems, our family belief systems, and despair grounded in the awareness of our culture. Against both temptations, the poet speaks. There's an insistence from Habakkuk that when Yahweh, when God is confessed to be the primal actor, the main actor in the life of the world, then neither denial nor despair is appropriate. Either temptation makes perfectly compelling sense when the world is without God, but the poem insists to the contrary, that the world is not without God, that God is present as strength and savior. So we have these three things that Habakkuk gives to us in his journey of complaints to rejoicing. Repetition, remembrance, and rejoicing. And all of these things take Habakkuk from this prophet who is lamenting to this shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Because his circumstances are as difficult as ever. God has not changed the course of history to appease his lament. But yet he moved from this place of struggle to a place of faith. And I believe when we read this text together as a church, this is what we are invited into. We are invited first and foremost into honest lament. Speak Honestly, with God, your frustration. Bring your frustration and your cries for justice. 
And as our minor prophet does, do what he does. Repeat the truths of God. Remember the power of God and rejoice in the goodness of God. And as we step forward in our journey of faith, I want all of that to be framed under this simple truth that God loves the world more than you do. And that one day he will deal with its evil. Faith is not a blind pursuit. Faith is an honest partnership, trusting that God loves the world more than you do. And sometimes that is the hinge upon which our faith falls. That we come to a conclusion that God does not. But that's the story of Jesus, isn't it? We read this together as a, as a team this morning, and I think it's apt for us to read together. Ephesians 3, 16 to 17. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, Worship team, can you join me at the front? That God loves the world more than you do. Repetition, remembrance, rejoicing. The foundation of it is us actually having trust that God loves the world more than you do. And we see that through the person of Jesus. That God said, I love the world so much that I will give myself to your injustice. That I love the world so much that I will... Choose not to wield power to simply make all that was wrong to him right. I will walk in humility. I will show you a new way because I love you. I will enter into that which I do not deserve because I love you. And it's not just that God loves you and I, but that he loves the world more than you and I do. He loves the person that you love the most in the world more than you ever could. More than you could ever fathom, more than you could ever desire. That is God's love for them beyond our quantification. And if we believe that to be true, then we know that God's heart for them is one that is good. So when we approach God with our honest lament, I hope that you are confronted by that truth of God's love for you and for the world and for the injustices that you see first and foremost. Honest but hopeful. So find hope, O weary souls. Find hope in my faithful promises. Find hope in my love, O you broken heart. And never lose hold of the truth that God loves this world more than we do. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.